Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Back in the day when I was at the Crime Commission, I was assigned to Operation Weed and Seed. We had a homicide where the only witness was a little boy, eight years old. The victim that was shot and killed dropped literally 20 feet from his back porch where he was standing. He was the only eyewitness that could identify the shooter. In his testimony in court, he said the shooter was up on the hill. And then he said he was about a mile from me. The prosecutor, being brilliant, on redirect asked him, how far is a mile? And he said, about from me to the back door, the back door of the courtroom, (laughs) probably not even 50 feet. When you're talking about eyewitnesses and you're describing a scene and you're describing a perpetrator, what's a mile to him versus what is an actual mile? Oftentimes, we need more information from eyewitnesses to clarify what they did or didn't see. Scott Peterson was found guilty of killing his wife, Lacey, and unborn son, Connor. Peterson has had two failed appeals and a habeas corpus that failed. Decades later, the Innocent Project of LA has taken up his case. And we're all sitting here. What is the new evidence? Is there any true new evidence? There's a burned out van. There's allegedly blood in the van. Who does the blood belong to? They're bringing up these eyewitnesses again. What did they see? Who did they see? When did they see this? But we have somebody with us that's going to be able to help us like no other. We have an investigative reporter that has literally been on this case from day one, y'all. Laura Engel is one of those folks, boots on the ground. She and I agree 100% that you got to go. You got to go to the scene. You got to walk it. You got to understand it. You just got to breathe it in. You can't sit in a studio 3,000 miles away and tell about a case with any real authority. 72 hours ago, she was standing in the, quote, alley where the burned-out van was, and she's with us tonight. Now, let me tell you a little bit about her. She ain't just an investigative reporter. She ain't just covered this thing for five minutes. She's been on it from day one. She's produced stories about it. She's been on documentaries about this case. She even won an Edward R. Murrah Award for it. Now, that's one of the top things there is. The Pulitzer and the Edward R. Murrah, that's about it. That's the gold standard. Laura started out in radio. She matriculated into TV. She's done documentaries. But when I tell you she has been on this case, She's going to be able to share with you some things you had no idea. Laura Engel, thank you for joining us tonight. And I just want to say, I appreciate you not only coming on Zone 7, but being a part of mine. 
Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much. That was a very nice and warm introduction. Well, it's heartfelt because you and I have had conversations off air, texting each other. What does this look like? What do you think this is? And I mean, one of the first videos you sent me as your boots on the ground where the van was found burned out, it changed everything for me. Because again, for me, what I'm looking at is not what I personally would identify as an alley. Yeah, I mean, when this orange van, the burnt out orange van story broke, um, or, you know, we're, we're learning about it through the documents of the LA Innocence Project, when I heard about that, and as you mentioned, you know, I've been covering the story for a really long time, I hadn't heard about this. And I kept looking at that photo that was shared through the documents of the burnt out orange van had a structure next to it. And I kept looking at it thinking, okay. And I, it, at first it, it appeared to me that that is where the alley was. And I said, all right, I want to go see it. And that's when I, I actually texted you and I called you. I said, I'm going to go to Modesto because I'm going to be in California and I'm just too close to Modesto to not go check it out. I've been up and down those streets in front of that courthouse in Modesto. Remember, he was he had his preliminary hearing in Modesto. Then it was his trial was moved to Redwood City. So there was a lot of activity and news coverage and radio reporting I did in Modesto. And I kept looking at the map going, I don't I haven't seen this. I need to go see it. So that's exactly what we did um, and got down to Modesto rented a car and drove from the Covina house, the former home of the Petersons over to this alley, which to my surprise, when I got there, I said, oh, there's no blue structure that this van is against. I later learned that that van, when that picture was taken, was actually at a tow yard um, up against a wall of some kind. Um, But this alley was dirt with a big eucalyptus tree and chain link fence and dilapidated wood and a mattress, gang graffiti, garbage. And it is in a bad part of town that everybody would describe as a bad part of town. No offense to the people that live there, but it's known as the airport district. And it actually is within eyesight of, I was taking pictures of planes going over my head when I was standing in the alley. And I could hear children behind one of the fences. There were you know, some some people that I wouldn't wanted to be alone in the alley with that were walking by. I'm glad that we brought security with us. Uh, but in fact, you know, it is it is just a tad over one mile from Lacey and Scott's former home to this area. And it's interesting. You know, there's somebody set a, a van on fire, um, charred it. It wasn't just arson. It was cans of gasoline, canisters of gasoline, a rag hanging out of the uh, fuel tank and then, you know, just set ablaze on this dirt road. And I actually texted with somebody who had helped make that report, that fire incident report. And I, I sent him a picture and I said, tell me exactly where the van was. Was it on this side of Empire? Was it on the other, you know, the, just the, it's a long, it's a long quote alley. It's a long dirt road. And he circled it and I stood there and I, that's where I filmed uh, my stand-up for News Nation, and I just wanted to stand in the spot where the van was found. It could have nothing to do with the case. It could have everything to do with the case, and we needed to see it. The very first thing I saw when you sent me a photograph was what looked like a dirt road. To me, a alley is between two tall buildings, and the back doors face the alley where Workers come out to take a smoke break or put trash in the dumpsters. To me, that's an alley. What I saw was a cut through in a neighborhood. Completely different. Completely different. To me, where the van was dropped would be known to the folks that dumped the van, but would also be within walking or quickly running distance from a place they could hide, meaning a family member's home or their own home. Everybody in that airport district would know this cut through to me. An alleyway could be somewhere you could dump something and you have no association with it. I believe whoever dumped that van had association to that cut through. And that's a really good observation and point because when you look at the map and it is contained within the court document that was filed by the LA Innocence Project and you see the map in that document 
and where the van was located is a hair down the block from where one of the burglary suspects had a family member. So Mm. we know that two of the burglary suspects who confessed, right? They confessed, they were cleared, they were polygraphed. And these are words from the detectives who worked the case. And one of the, it was an aunt that lived in this area. So one of those burglars had knowledge. Look, anybody that lives in Modesto knows this area. So you can't just say it was Stephen Todd or Glenn Pierce. It was, you know, it was everybody who is maybe in a criminal activity. Cause this, this area is known for gang activity, mm-hmm. for auto theft, um, for arson, for drug dealing. This is when we say it's a quote, bad neighborhood. It's because that's where a lot of the people who are arrested for those types of crimes either reside or do their business, maybe even in that dirt road cut through. Um, so, so when you look at the map and you, you take a look at, okay, so it's close to, but Then there's the question. If somebody who has committed uh, this heinous crime, uh, the alleged heinous crime, are they burning out a van in back of their aunt's house, essentially? You know, it's it's a little it's a little close if you're going to do something like that. Or is it somebody else that's connected? Because remember, the two burglars that were busted, we never heard about an orange van. We always heard about another van that, you know, there were a lot of vans that were reported in this neighborhood at the time. I'm from California. I'm from Sacramento. This is why this case is so, uh, was so, and still remains important to me is yeah, I'm from California. There's a lot of vans. There's a lot of vans, you know? So, okay, let's talk about it. There, there was a van that was spotted, uh, in the neighborhood across the street from Scott and Lacey's house around the time that this burglary occurred. At first it was described as, as white, brown, tan, there was a van that was discovered um, and that was tracked down by detectives that was in a, in a reservoir area where people were camping. Those people seemed suspicious. They were investigated, checked out. That van went to the Department of Justice and was combed through head to toe. And there was no evidence of that van. But was that the white, tan or brown van? We still don't really know. And then we've got this orange van. Now we've learned that, or, you know, maybe it it was in the archives 20 years ago, but with all the sightings that happened around Christmas time in 2002, there was a guy in the park down the street from Scott and Lacey's house who reported seeing what he thought was a Caltrans van. Caltrans vans, I can tell you as a Californian, is they're orange vans. So did he see something that he thought was a Caltrans van and it was really this van? Was this van close? These are some of the questions that the LA Innocence Project wants looked at, investigated, and checked out just to make sure. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Nobody wants an innocent person to go to prison. Nobody. But this van, to me, is coming up out of nowhere. This was never part of the larger conversation at the time of searching for Lacey, 
It never came up during trial that I remember. I have a hard time thinking that one or more people kidnapped Lacey, put her in this van, killed her, drove over to the water, somehow dumped her unseen. They don't have a boat. They got a van. Then pack up in that same van with blood all over it, drive back past near the kidnapping scene, and then dump it in a known area where you know police, anytime you've got something stolen or whatever, they're going to go through that cut through looking for the car, and that's where they dump it? That seems off to me. You're right. I mean, there's two narratives here. There's the narrative that we learned and lived through with the and the search, the investigation, the discovery, the trial, the sentencing. And, you know, Scott is guilty. He's in prison. Um, and then we've got this other narrative of this group of people, not just the L.A. Innocence Project. I did a documentary last year about the the case of trying to, you know, the family that is still 20 years later working to try and get him a new trial, trying to get the courts to look at some of the evidence that they had claimed. Now, this is last year before the Innocence Project, L.A. Innocence Project, put out this document. But, you know, last year I stood in Janie Peterson's, quote, war room that she has down in the San Diego area. Her family owns this, owns and operates a, a crate building business. Um, and that is one of the offices in that building down in Southern California. They've built this room mostly Janie, but it's, it's every wall is covered with huge cork boards and timelines and quotes and pictures. And they have been building this and talking about it. They have meetings with people who believe that Scott is innocent going over all the things that we're talking about and others, you know, the witnesses who say that they saw Lacey Peterson after Scott Peterson had gone uh, to go fishing that day. Um, evidence that was recovered, evidence that wasn't, you know, things that were stolen out of the Medina house that still today haven't been found. Um, so they've got, and they've got bank boxes of discovery. They've got bank boxes of testimony that's been printed out, binders and flyers, and just the whole lot. This has been going on behind the scenes for years. You know, people think about the Scott Peterson case and they think, well, you know, he's guilty, he's in prison, sure, fine. But in the background, there's been this effort. There's a website. There's, you know, and look, you go online and you've got a lot of people that say, you know, look, he's guilty. Come on. The tapes, the Amber uh, agreed. All of it is bad. And I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just, I just continue to report straight down the middle and straight down the line because it's my 20 year story of what's going on with this case. And this is a big development. This document contains a lot of information like the orange van, which I think is kind of the headliner but there's a lot of other stuff in here, witness testimony that they want to go back. And I had, I was, I was going through the documents when I got to Modesto. So I drive to Modesto. I was in California seeing friends and family go down to Modesto and I'm going through the document, which I thought I had come through pretty well. And I was in my hotel room, page after page going through it on my computer. And I saw my name and I was like, what? You know, and I, I, it was buried way, way down deep. And I said, okay, all right, let me just settle my eyes on this. My name is in here. And my name was in the LA Innocence Project because it was, they want Modesto police records of something that detective, now retired detective Al Brocchini told me in the interview that they had checked out other witness sightings of women in the neighborhood walking dogs. He said, we already checked those women out. You know, it wasn't Lacey that these witnesses saw. They saw these other women. Well, I guess the LA Innocence Project and others have gone through. They said, there's no police record of these other women. So we want to see, okay, you say that you've checked out other women and it wasn't Lacey. Where are the police records about that? And that is what is another thing that they say is missing that they want documents on. Two things. One, that proves the Innocence Project of L.A. has done their homework because they've watched everything they can find, right? And they've pinpointed you, and you had an interview, and now they need this cleared up. That's pretty good. I mean, that tells you they're not just looking at the front cover sheet, right? That's right. Exactly. And then the other thing is you have maintained, I mean, you're just Switzerland. Right. You don't ever come out and say, I think this or I think that. 
you report as steady down the road as you can so that people have all the information to make up their own opinion. I, on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) will gladly give you my opinion. And here it is. How lucky is the real killer that Scott Peterson was Lacey's husband? And this guy is not only having an affair, he chooses to not call 911 when he realizes she's missing. He does not report her missing. He don't look for her. He says the night before to his sister-in-law and wife, I'm going to go golfing tomorrow. And he doesn't go golfing. He goes fishing. And he's at the exact place, fishing, where his wife and unborn son surface after being murdered. While a vigil's going on, he's not participating in the vigil. He ain't crying. He ain't sorry. He's not sad. He's on the phone with Amber, the person he's having the affair with. There are things that occurred during the investigation, like Lacey's hair on a pair of pliers inside a toolbox, inside his boat. That's bad. The fact that he was making homemade anchors and she was weighed down. That's bad. The fact that he gets $15,000 cash and dyes his hair and grabs his brother's ID. That's a bad look. To me, all of these things, when your best friend turns on you, your mother-in-law turns on you, there is nobody, not anybody you worked with, went to church with, went to school with, lived next door to, nobody is coming forward saying there's no way Scott could do this other than his sister-in-law. I understand. And a lot lot of people agree with you, obviously, you know, like we've been, we've been covering this for so long. And when all of this stuff happened with the LA Innocence Project, I called up uh, Detective Bueller, who was on the case, and he was one of the first, first to get there uh, when this happened. And it was, he was, he and Brocchini were assigned to basically clear Scott, you know, that was their job was let's just, let's just clear Scott Peterson. um, And so we can move on. And I think that's pretty standard, right? That they've got to make sure the husband didn't do it so they can focus. But he said, I just, we just couldn't clear him. Just one thing after another kept happening and we needed to stay on that. Now, as you know, I went back and was listening to, I I even went back and was listening to some of uh, my coverage and the coverage of the stations I was working for at the time um, about what was happening while Brocchini and Bueller we're focusing on Scott. There was this whole other thing with Detective Cloward, and he led the charge. I mean, they had helicopters in the air. They had people in the park. They had bloodhounds. I mean, they were looking. So I know that there's a narrative of they focused on Scott and they didn't pay attention to any of the, you know, you can go back and and watch all of the things that happened back in late 2002, early 2003, that there was a, obviously, I mean, if just to remind people of how, Thorough. And that's why everybody paid attention to the story. Like the world descended upon Modesto. Where is she? Everybody, myself included. I mean, that was how I came to the story in the first place because I saw her picture. I knew how close it was to my hometown. And because if you have a microphone or a camera, you know, you wear it like a badge, like I can help. Let me help. Let me get the story out there. Is there somebody that saw something? That is what I, that is the the greatest gift of this job is to try and help people. I can talk about it. I can tell you what's happening. But like, if there is somebody missing, if that's somebody that I, you know, I just, I put myself in the shoes of, of, of a Sharon Rocha, of the girlfriends, the best friends from high school, who I have that same type of group in Sacramento. And I, if some, one of us went missing, I know that every single one of us is going to be on the case. Let's go. And that's, and that's where I was. That's where all the reporters were. That's where the world was, it seemed. I mean, there was, there was stuff going on internationally. People were watching this in, you know, <laughs> our troops were watching this case unfold. Where is Lacey Peterson? Everybody wanted to know. And everybody who could wanted to help and did. Let's talk about that picture. She's sitting in a little burgundy jumpsuit smiling. She looks so happy and she is so pregnant. She's just adorable. And at the time, one of your best friends was pregnant. 
And so this story, not just geographically, but emotionally. It did. And, and to that point of just, you know, imagine one of your own, imagine one of your own friends. Uh, I saw that picture and I said, oh my gosh, that reminds me so much of my friend. Like, what, what would we do? What would we do if my friend Amy went missing? There would probably be no meals in those first 48. Like, you, you, you are not taking a nap. And she wasn't just a little pregnant. Like, you could not see her walking down the street and not know she was pregnant. There's no way. Mm -hmm. So that also tells you this kidnapper, this stranger, how many kidnappers kidnap somebody eight and a half months pregnant? So now we get down to math. I mean, if it is so minuscule that it just doesn't even seem possible, again, your focus is going to go back on the husband. And here's where it gets to what he did versus what he did not do. And in this case, what he did not do just slaps you in the face. I mean, he calls her mama, um, Lacey over there. Now, Lacey's car is at the house. So that means somebody would have had to come and pick her up. He already knows that. He found the dog wearing the leash, allegedly. So he should know immediately something is wrong. And it's Christmas Eve. And see, that's another thing. Everybody's marriage is not the same. I know that. But I would think most people on Christmas Eve with a wife that is eight and a half months pregnant and y'all have got a family party planned, you don't go golfing or fishing. I would think. I would think you would want to be with her. You would want to be with the family. It is such an exciting time. But he's already making plans. He's telling them the night before, I ain't going to be around. And let me just say this too. When I was back there on Covina in Modesto, I was, you know, I just sat in my rental car and I sat there just kind of in the quiet, remembering being there when things were so hectic. And back in the day when I was a radio reporter, I got away with a lot. And that's because I didn't have a camera putting it in somebody's face. Nobody, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk. A lot of people did. But as a radio reporter, you can walk up and say, look, there's no camera. Just you know, tell me. What'd you see that day? What happened? And I remember going across the street, you know, I banged on all the doors and a couple doors, just two doors down to the left. If you're standing in front of the Peterson's home and the Peterson's home is to your back, Medina's across the street. I go to the left and I talked to somebody and they came to the, to their screen door. And I said, you know, what, what's going on? Like, what did you see that day? What happened? And they said, well, Scott came over and knocked on my door and said, Have, had I seen Lacey? And I said to Scott, well, uh, no, I haven't. But, you know, where were you? It's Christmas Eve. Like, where were you? He said, I was playing golf. Now, this is Christmas Eve. She's been reported missing. The searches began. We know that the story changed. I just always found that interesting, that that was a, another furtherance of that tale. Was he stressed out? Sure. But I'll never forget it. But he misspoke a lot. And he said things that were weird, right? Like when he's talking, I think it's Diane Sawyer, and he refers to her in past tense. Was he misspeaking then? Or was that subconscious because he knew she was dead? And here's the other thing. You and I are both married. I will tell you, Walt McCollum is a lucky man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he is. I'm so easy to get along with. You know, never a crossword. I don't need anything at all. I'm just a joy constantly. Any man that refers to his marriage as glorious, could there be anything more creepy, more ill-advised to say, more odd? I mean, all joking aside, I think we have a great marriage. We've got two fantastic children. I think we've done right by each other. I would never use the word glorious. When he said that, I don't know anybody that just didn't get a feeling. Well, I'll tell you what stuck out to me during those interviews. He only granted a few interviews, but it was the interview uh, with Gloria Gomez, who was a local reporter in Sacramento. And she's been a part of a couple of documentaries because she got one of the interviews during this time before he was, before the bodies were found, before the arrest happened. And I think one of the biggest questions in that interview that people have pointed out is she's sitting down similar in the, in the living room, in Scott's house. And 
they're talking and the phone is, his phone is ringing and he doesn't get up to pick up the phone. And she goes, do you want to get that? And he goes, no, that's okay. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. It could be the call. And that was a big problem for a lot of people. Like when we watched that and rewound it and watched it again and uh, you know, and let, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Cause that's what I do. I play it down the middle. Maybe, maybe he said he handed his, his phone to somebody and said, if my phone rings, you know, pick up the call for me, but it was his phone. It rang. She's missing. Somebody could have called and said, we've got to leave. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Well, let's talk about the other horrendous action. He sold her car and tried to sell their house. So let's just say she had a medical event, hit her head, had some amnesia. When she gets better, she's going to walk up to the front door and he don't live there. (laughs) (sighs) Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people have, have looked at that and just pointed to guilt. I don't recall. I'm trying to think of what the reasoning was of just needing the money. Yeah, the sister-in-law, I think, said he needs money to pay bills. But again, he didn't sell his own car. He sold hers. He didn't sell the boat. He didn't sell the golf clubs. He sold her car. That's a move that anyone should question. So here's the deal. You show up day one. You're in front of the home. For the next 20 years... You go back to the home. You talk to family members. You talk to witnesses. You talk to law enforcement. I know you're middle of the road, but what do you see today unfolding with the Innocence Project, with the families? Because I can't help but think of Sharon Rocha, that she is once again having to deal with this devil. He just will not go away. When I think about that i mean there's there's a couple things that have come you know obviously this i was working on i was working on rex huerman in the long island serial killer case in in the office in new york when this story broke and somebody came banging on the door and they said laura something happened with scott peterson do you want to come out here and i said what um and i immediately think of of sharon rocha because i i read her book which is the most devastating book of you know it's a it's a loving tribute to her daughter but her heartbreak is so tangible and has been from the beginning that I can't help but think of her and Brent and Amy and the rest of the family. Um, her partner, Ron Gransky, has since passed away. And I just I just remember seeing the grief then, seeing it in the interviews after, and they've, you know, they they have not uh to me, I mean, I've I've reached out and they've I think they're done talking about it and they they chose not to go through another trial uh, when his death penalty was overturned, and you know, and that tells you something. They just they can't do it. They don't want to do it again. It's 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 too hard. I mean, Connor Peterson would be going to college. He would be tall. He would be handsome. He'd have his own car. He might have a girlfriend. You know, and and that's that's what 
I think about when I, that's like kind of the first wave that hits me when something comes up about Scott Peterson and my heart breaks and I keep the victims' families in my heart. And that includes the Petersons. I think about his parents, his aging parents, and, and uh, his mother passed away. Lee is still around, his dad, the family that still believes in him. I know, I know what you're going to say <laughs> to those listening. I know, but I'm just saying that they loved Lacey too, okay? And then you've got the girlfriends, the best friends from high school. And so you've got that first wave. Everybody has to live through this again. Then you dig into the document and you go, all right, what are we dealing with here? And when I heard about the van, and there's just a couple of things I want to point out, the, these pictures that we talked about, the picture of the orange van up against the blue wall that's in a tow yard. Um, when you look in the back of the van, my husband actually pointed this out, there are cinder blocks in the back of the burned out van. There are these gas canisters in the back of the burned out van. And then when I scroll through the document of the declaration of the fire investigator and what he wrote down, you know, and the, the reporter, the producer who ended up going and finding this guy, he opened the door and he said to the producer, I've been waiting 10 years for somebody to come and ask me this or maybe more. He, he said, I've been I've always wondered why this wasn't checked out. And everybody initially heard this report and said, where was this guy? Where's this guy been? Well, if you go through the L.A. Innocence Project and you read his declaration, he was right there. He describes going with a police detective to the yard where this van had originated from. It belonged to a rigging company and a guy named Terry Bowden. And that's who it was registered to. They did go and interview him. He said, I think the van was stolen and all of my employees had access to that van. Talked about Bobby Riggs, the last guy that had access to the van. Checked out Bobby Riggs. Bobby Riggs said, yep, I, I borrowed the van and I put it back on December 27th. Well, the van was found burning in flames on Christmas morning. So there was an investigation done. There was evidence taken. And in this declaration, it describes... Uh, Brian Spitulski is the fire investigator, and he describes, you know, going to the yard and talking to the van owner, going back, and and it was towed to a tow yard, and then somebody realized along the way this could be evidence. They take it to the Modesto Police Department warehouse, and they and they actually had the sense to cover it because all of us were there. Now we learn that they covered this with a tarp, put it on a flatbed, and towed it to the Modesto Police Department out of our prying eyes to see what's what. And they do test it. And they do realize that there is blood after they remove a gas canister that's in the middle of the mattress. They pull up the gas canister and there's the stain. And everybody goes, oh my God. And they, they test it. And so there's, there's just more, there's just more information. And it's just still a question it was tested. It, it seemed, you know, came back. They put it in a tube. You, you would know more than that than me that they put something in a tube, it turned blue, and that showed it was human blood. And then it went to the Department of Justice. But then what happened? Now, we could find out that they did, the Department of Justice tested it, and it wasn't Lacey's, and that's it. Or did they? Did they test it? Is DNA technology today so advanced that we could learn something more from that piece of mattress cloth that was cut, preserved, logged. Let's test. I mean, that's the, that's the idea. Let's test it and find out. And then when I talked to detective now retired Al Brocchini, I said, he goes, look, it's not going to be Lacey's blood. He goes, and if it's somebody's blood, whose blood is it? Maybe there's another crime we need to be talking about here. Here's the reality for me. Arson most often is to cover up another crime. So whatever happened inside that van should be paramount to law enforcement. And you can take Lacey Peterson completely out of that equation and it should still be paramount with that amount of blood. Most people do not have five cans of gasoline in the back of their van. This means to me, somebody had to go get cans, go get gasoline, come back and then do the arson. So they went to great lengths to try to cover up whatever was inside that van. The photograph you sent me, there's a clear pattern on that cloth, and it looks rectangle. 
it looks like the blade of a knife laying flat, being cleaned off, is what it looks like to me. I need somebody to clarify what we're seeing. And there's a second thing, Laura. Let's talk about the Virgin Mary statue. Well, in this L.A. Innocence Project document, there are a lot of sworn declarations. And I found it really interesting that the declaration from Susan Medina, remember, she's the wife that lived across the street, the Medinas. Uh, they actually, I found out this week when I was in Modesto that they do still live in the neighborhood. They just don't live in that house. Um, but neighbors I spoke to said they're still here. They just live, you know, down the road. They stayed. They just moved out of that house. And the declaration of Susan Medina talks about um, the when the police came over. Obviously, the world is, you know, right there on Covina. And she talks about being in the house and looking around at all the things that are out of place. And she said that there was a Virgin Mary statue that had been moved during the burglary of her home. And she says that she pointed it out to investigators, said, you know, they clearly touched that. And she said they didn't touch it. They didn't fingerprint it. She offered them to take the French doors that had been kicked in in the back of her house because there was a footprint. And she said, take the doors. You, you just go take a screwdriver, unhinge the hinge and just take it. And she says they didn't. Now, it'll be interesting, Cheryl, to find out if we can get the records, you know, what what is the police version of that? Did they did they take something else that we don't know about that wasn't recorded? You know, I don't want to you know, you don't want to say, well, the Modesto Police Department did absolutely nothing. But they obviously they you know, Bueller, Detective Bueller told me he said this was the most well investigated home burglary in the history of Modesto or California. Like we went up and down and we test, you know, we checked out everything. We, we got the guys. But when you hear it from Susan Medina, who was the eyewitness who opened her doors after coming home from Christmas and said, oh my gosh, somebody has ripped through my house, stolen our safe, took out, you know, there's a hammer that somebody took out of my, my husband's shop and it, they used it for something. Can you take the hammer and can you, can you fingerprint that? She says they didn't. You know, I have a mantra and it's every test on every case, every time. And the reason is if you fingerprint the doorknob and get a decent print off a perpetrator, that's great. But if you have more than one perpetrator and you don't fingerprint the Virgin Mary statue, you may not get the second person inside that house. Do all of it. There's no excuse not to do all of it. It's 30 seconds at the most to fingerprint that little statue. And the question is, if, if true, what's the reason? I want to read you a couple of just a quick passage. Well, I'll read you the end of this uh, declaration of Susan Medina. What's interesting about Susan Medina, she talks about how the neighborhood was very close knit. Our neighbors all looked out for one another and would take notice when something was amiss in the neighborhood. I recall instances of seeing Lacey interacting with people out on the street. In one instance, I was inside my home and recall Lacey yelling at some teenagers who were in her yard and telling them to get out of her yard. I also recall having a conversation with one of our neighbors, Lil Erkind, about an incident she witnessed involving Lacey. Lil told me she witnessed Lacey confronting and yelling at some people who were fighting in the street on Covina. I believe that conversation occurred after Lacey's disappearance. It doesn't make sense. We both commented on how Lacey was feisty and protective in that way. Lil, who was herself Portuguese, commented that it must be the Portuguese and Lacey. I recall another occasion when I was outside my home pruning some of my plants. Lacey spotted me and came up to me because she saw I was doing a terrible job of pruning. She told me in a polite way I wasn't pruning my plants correctly and there was a better way to do it if I wanted to help them grow better. I recall that while thinking Lacey was very polite, it was also very bold of her to come and tell me how to do my pruning. Talking about the presence of homeless and transient people increasing when the Modesto Gospel Mission opened at the corner of Yosemite and Rufino Avenue. I recall that every morning around 6 a.m. the shelter would close and the occupants would have to leave for the day, many of them traveling on foot through our neighborhood. With the increase in foot traffic, we also started to have more people digging through our trash and recycling on a regular basis. We started taking added precautions when we noticed an increase in foot and bicycle traffic on our street. 
On December 24, 2002, we were in the final stages of constructing a covered patio in our backyard. The covered patio was on the south and east side of the house, as depicted by the shading below. I've got the diagram. It's in the document. They saw somebody. I don't know if you've ever heard this part, Cheryl. They left their home at 10.30 a.m. on December 24th to go out of town to visit relatives over the Christmas holiday. We locked the gate to our backyard before leaving. As we were driving down Covina, Rudy pointed a man out to me that looked suspicious. The man was wearing a flannel shirt and was slowly riding past our house on a bike while heading north on the east side of Covina. He was not actively pedaling when we passed him, but was kind of slowly walking his bike. He was a white man. And the look of him made me feel uncomfortable. He looked out of place and something about him made me nervous. So we circled the block by turning right on Encina, right on Santa Barbara, right on Highland, right on Edgebrook, and right on Covina. It would have only taken us less than a minute to circle the block. I did not see the man when we drove back by our home on Covina. With the way Covina is situated, he had taken the path into the park. We would have seen him by the time we circled back, but we did not see where he went. When we returned from our trip from L.A., December 26, we were shocked by the presence of so many media on Covina. After showing our IDs to Covina, we approached our house. I remember Rudy noticing our dolly in the front yard as we pulled in. Rudy entered the back doors of our house, which had been kicked in, and had me wait outside. Rudy then came running out of the house and announced that we had been robbed. Immediately, the police, which were focused on the Petersons' home, started coming over to us and our residents, and we reported the burglary. The detectives were going back and forth between the Peterson residence and our house. I remember being concerned that with all the media there, that the reporters were going to think that we were suspects in whatever had happened at the Peterson home, since the police were now looking at our house. I was also concerned because they were not wearing shoe coverings when going back and forth between the houses, and I was concerned about cross-contamination of evidence. At some point, I remember Doug Lavelle coming over to our residence. He was working with the Modesto Police Department. I knew Doug's wife, Peggy, through work. I recall Doug coming into our house to look at evidence. I walked him and the detectives through the house, pointing out things that were out of place. I had just cleaned the house ahead of our trip so I could tell what had been touched by the burglars. I recall offering to the police that they could take the French doors if they needed them as evidence. I remember they had been kicked in and there was a footprint on the doors. They declined to take the doors. I remember when we entered our master bedroom, Rudy's hammer from his shed and one of his work gloves were on our bed. The head of the hammer was wrapped in the glove in such a way that made me think it was being used to suppress the noise of, of using the hammer to hit something. I do not believe the police collected either the hammer or the glove. I cannot recall whether they swabbed or checked them for fingerprints. Also on the bed was a statue of the Virgin Mary, which had been on top of the safe. Again, I recall pointing out to the police so they would know that the burglars touched that. Next to the statue was an envelope that I kept our monthly allowance of cash in. I recall there being about $400 in the envelope when we left. When we returned, the envelope was missing the majority of the cash. When I suggested the police fingerprint items in our home that had been touched or disturbed, the detective told me that I, quote, watched too much CSI. So that's, you know, that's where the LA Innocence Project is concerned and wants to know what happened with some of these items. And she ends this in her last statement, sworn declaration, July 29th, 2023, just last year, ending with, I have always been bothered by the lack of investigation of the burglary of our home and the possible connection to Lacey's disappearance and murder. Signed, Susan Medina. When you have an opportunity to take five more minutes, do it. Take the statue. Take the doors. Throw fingerprint powder all over that place. Measure everything. Make the victim feel like that you are doing everything possible. And let me address the TV comment for one moment. That is what people know. That's where they get their information. So when you say to somebody, well, I can't fingerprint a brick and you want to move on, take the brick. You can get DNA from it. Don't tell them what you can't do. Take five more minutes, not even, to pick the brick up, put it in a bag, tag it, and take it with you, and see if you can run some tests. To make them feel like you have literally done all that you can do because you did. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I do believe your job is so important. And I tell people this all the time in small towns, your police department may not have a drone, but your TV station does. And if you've got a child or an elderly person missing, ask for their help. Get that drone in the air. If they cover it, fine. But use the tools that are available to you. I agree with you 100%. There was nobody better to get on this thing quicker to search for her than the media. And the media that gathered at the Red Line Hotel and that, you know, got the flyers record, you know, we see the we see the desperate panic and grief on the faces of Sharon Rocha. I mean, if you just if you just go back and you look at the difference of actions of of just even just the look on their face and everybody handles things differently. And we, we have to keep saying that over and over again, especially with this case, but that desperate grief, that is that guttural feeling that you experience when you listen to Sharon Rocha at the microphone, please, please, if you have her, bring her back and you hear Lacey's biological father break down And then, you know, you see, and then people would say, but look at Scott Peterson, he's walking his dog, he's going, you know, he's handing out a few flyers and he's leaving. That was, that was what was so suspicious in the beginning uh, as well to many people. And people wanted to know, why aren't you driving down the street? I recall uh, having somebody in my life missing for a few hours and I got in my car and I rolled down both windows and I went up and down the street screaming that person's name. And I knew I looked like a maniac, but I was so desperate that that person was injured, had fallen, might be unconscious. I, I, I remember that fear and it is real when it happens. And we saw it unfold in, in real time in front of our cameras and microphones during that time. And when you watch, you know, just the different side of that, it, it's hard, it's hard to wrap your head around it. We just have to listen to his explanation on that. He's in prison. Jury found him guilty. But that's something that always stuck out to me. You know, you've been on this case 20 years. And I worked Natalie Holloway for 17, 18. And I've watched her mom and most recently with your hand taking a plea. When I sat with her mama a couple of years ago in front of a chapel in Aruba, it was me, Beth, and Nancy Grace. And it had been all that time, 17 years. And we were just sitting in silence, letting Beth just take it all in at the chapel where she first felt any peace at all. And she turned to the two of us and she said, I know you think I'm crazy, but I brought Natalie's passport just in case. And I know you feel this way. There's a time where you stop being a reporter 
and you stop being a crime scene investigator and you're a mama. And I know with Sharon Rocha and with Beth Holloway, you and I have both had that experience where after you have that baby, something happens to you where you can't hear about a missing child or a murdered child or where you're not affected so deeply and so differently that yes, you can still you you know do your job professionally, but there's part of you that now just kind of has this overlay, and it's different. It's more personal to you. And when you're involved in a story like this one, or Natalie Holloway, or the Yosemite murders, which I covered, or the Connecticut home invasion story that I did every day of that trial too, you just you have to compartmentalize while you're doing your job. But at night, when the lights go out, I see their faces. I want to help bring answers. And I know that victims' family members, and I don't blame anybody who doesn't want a camera in their face, asking them how, you know, that's the thing, Cheryl. When I covered the trial of Scott Peterson, and I was outside of that courthouse every day waiting for my press pass and getting a seat in the courtroom, and I watched the family members come in. There was something about Sharon Rocha that reminded me of my own mom. And I didn't, I didn't want to chase her. I didn't want to put a microphone in her face. And I didn't need to ask her how she felt because I could see it. I could see it and I could describe it. And as a radio reporter, I felt comfortable in my reporting abilities that I could talk about watching her go up, go up and go out into that courthouse. And I just, I just never, I never felt the need to do that. I didn't want to do that to her because she was already just being annihilated with, with media. Laura, will you describe for us Lacey in the jumpsuit photograph and what the prosecutor did during the trial? We had a lot of exhibits in court and one of the most powerful examples of a double life that Scott Peterson was living was when Lacey Peterson went to a Christmas party by herself. And she was dressed up in this kind of ruby colored, beautiful jumpsuit with jewelry and a big broad smile sitting in a chair uh, because she was pregnant and her doctor had told her to, you know, stay off of her feet. According to testimony, we heard about that. So there she is sitting at a Christmas party by herself. and. They put up on the other side of the screen a picture of Scott Peterson and Amber Fry the same night. And that's what he was doing. And you, it was, oh, it was hard. It was hard to see that and look over at the family and think about what that felt like for them. Chances are they've already seen the photos, but now we're seeing it publicly in trial. And it just made you want to start crying. It was it was so hard to see that. How could you let her go to that party? How could you let her look that beautiful and pregnant and hopeful while driving down 99 to go to Fresno and go to another Christmas party with somebody else? It happens all the time, though. This we know. Adultery, affairs. But to see it in vivid color on a huge screen inside of a courthouse, courtroom, is painful. I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do, with a quote. I would have liked to personally have prosecuted Scott Peterson, Nancy Grace. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.